Hello and welcome to what, what's the name of the podcast? Not quite great books. It's, been <laughs> it's a while. going great already. <laughs> Nailed it. Leave it um, in. Leave it in. Three, two. Hello and welcome to Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I'm one of your hosts, John McMahon, and joining me on the other line, just back from Ronald Reagan's Evil Empire speech, it's Danielle Hanley. Oh, hello. That was a good one. That was Thank a you. really good one. Thank you. Um, <laughs> the first of many, like, no prep, no ambition, just vibes podcasts for yeah. today, which implies that there's more than vibes in our normal podcasts. Well, listen, I, like, have my students in my moderns class do a podcast season, like, and they have to make it cohesive. And so I show them our outlines, at least one of them, to show them, like, how we, like, set things up and how we how we outline and how we go about recording like i use our non vibes version as a model it doesn't go great i'm in, i'm impressed that you think our outlines are good enough to show students i did i i maybe told you this separately not on air but i was in my senior seminar like talking through the research process with students <laughs> And I oh, showed no. <laughs> my students what my notes look like, which Danielle knows very deeply Wild. from our m- many times working together. Wild. And I like made a joke about how I don't recommend any of you do this. This is a sign <laughs> that I am unwell. And like I just kept going. I was like, find the method that works for you. The exact yeah. method doesn't matter, et cetera, et cetera. So then I'm like, okay, we had our half hour of like talking about this part of the research process. Now yeah. you've got the rest of the 40 minutes to just work on stuff. Yeah. I have a student comes comes up with her laptop and shows me an extensively color-coded notes that she was taking for her project. And I'm like, I'm so sorry, student. Um, I no. apologize that your brain is broken. Like but also, is, I love it. Also, this is one of my favorite students. So good for her. I was going to go on a notes tangent. We shouldn't do that. <laughs> we can do it later. <laughs> right. So we are, I think, talking about Americans season three as a whole, a season yeah. three interview episode on the heels of our hit podcast, American season two interview. Yeah. I mean, season two interview was a great time. So buckle up, everyone. This is going to be an even better time. <laughs> because we have an extensive, well-planned time ahead the of you for the next hour. most well-planned outline. <laughs> um, there is a shared Google Doc that just says we're halfway through the Americans. So, Danielle, do you want to talk about uh, that aspect of what we're doing? <laughs> is that the question you were going to ask me? No, I have an actual okay. opening question, but I figure, you know, you pointed out <laughs> this fact, and I yeah. also caught this fact. So we should, you know, just take a moment to, to acknowledge and memorialize that. Yeah. So I think like I was reflecting on it this morning at the gym and I was like, oh, wow. Like this is where there are six seasons. We just finished the third season. So now we're halfway through. And I like two things jumped to my brain. The first is like, it feels like a very different show than it was in season one and not in a bad way. And and, and, like, it has evolved in like a really like, um, generally satisfying and beautiful and intense way, but mm-hmm. it feels really different than, than the first season. Um, and the other thing I kept thinking about was like, Oh, it's been really hard to not turn on the next episode. Um, every time I log into Hulu. Right. So, and I don't think that I was having that same, I didn't have that same, like, Oh, I just like want to see where this goes 
after season one or season two. Like I, I wanted to see where it went, but I didn't have the like pull to it. Like I do right now. So, I got it. I get that. Yeah. Um, and I want to pick up on one or two of those things as we go. But the first thing is my actual question for you, <laughs> Daniel, what do you think the defining moment of season three is? I have an answer. I can give you some critics answer. I should say like for quote unquote preparation, I did read some coverage of the end of season three by Laura Hudson and Shanti Collins and Stefan Sasa. Um, So those are going to inform and I'll shout out when I have particular points, but I got one of those from Stefan Sasa and one from Laura Hudson. So I'm interested in yours. I can share mine. What do you want to do here? Yeah, no, I, I really like that question. Um, the thing that jumps to mind is like the page reveal. Um, like that feels like not only a defining moment in season three, but a defining moment in the Americans. Cause it does really feel sort of like looking backwards that the whole show has been leading up to that. Right. Like there's so much of like, you know, like, what are you doing in the laundry room at midnight? Like those (laughs) moments that are, have primed us to be, or like primed me to be waiting for this other thing that, and this is related. The other thing that jumps to my brain is Paige telling pastor Tim the truth, which I don't think that he's going to believe. Like, I mean, I haven't watched, I haven't watched on, but Uh, Like Paige telling Pastor Tim the truth, which feels like of a piece with the page reveal, like also feels like a really big part of uh, it feels like a defining moment. And I guess it's kind of poetic that the like last moment of the season defines the entire season. Yeah, I would answer as well. The page reveal like that extended conversation that starts in the kitchen and goes to the dining room table would I think be my answer as well yeah. in part because the because of the shift that it signifies for the show not only in terms of plot but as you pointed out it is a different kind of show by the time we get to season 3 than it began as and I think that yeah. Paige's arc from you know ang- slightly angsty slightly nerdy caretaker teenage daughter to all of the things that happened to Paige in the season, including yeah. the like secret trip to Berlin uh, in the final episode. Wild. As a result of and catalyzed by what happened in the reveal in the Stingers episode that we talked about with Lily, that to me is kind of definitional of the season and the thing that like I rem- will always remember the most from this particular season. Can I give you some of the like critics? Yeah. You know, yeah, I'm the, interested I've, what other people thought. Yeah. So there was one, um, and these I didn't write down who said them. So I apologize. But it was, it was out of uh, Hudson, Collins, and Sasa. So I had one that was the murder uh, at the male robot repair facility, and one that was Philip killing Jean at the end of the season. So the murder at the male robot repair facility is also something that jumped to my brain. I don't think that I would call that the defining moment. First, I think the like Philip killing Jean is a really interesting way to think about a defining moment for this season. Like I don't necessarily agree with it, but I see that logic and I, I kind of like that, but I wonder, and you might not have the answer to this. So if you don't, that's fine. Um, But I wonder, like, is are those people who had seen just up through these episodes and are saying it? Those were in the like in the moment of this coming out. I think I think season three was like 2014 or 15, give or take. I think 2015. Yeah, I think you're right about that. 
Yeah. So it, the reason I ask is because like I could see those moments being defining moments in retrospect in a slightly different way. Um, but yeah, no, I think both of those are good candidates. They're just not yeah. my candidates. I would agree with that. And I just have a hard time thinking of it as anything other than the page review. But I also yeah. wonder to what extent that's a an effect of the way that we have watched this show, whether it's an effect of that being one of my favorite episodes we've recorded, that one that we did with Lily uh, yes. with regards to yeah. Stingers. Like, yeah. But there's kind of those internal elements to it as well. So, Danielle, you mentioned as well at the beginning that you thought that this show has become something maybe significantly different from what it began as. And that was indeed a theme of the critical response to the Americans. Nailed it. um, You know, we talked about this in the season two and review episode that like people were, you know, noting the shift in emphasis or quality from season one to season two. And then a couple of the reviews that I read, I think it was both Sasa and Collins talked about this as the season at which the Americans like ascends from very good show or very good spy show to, you know, one of the greatest shows or whatever, however one wants to categorize those sorts of things. So I guess a twofold question for you then, why do you think it's a different show by the time we get Mm -hmm. now into season three? And I forgot the second question. So we'll (laughs) go with that one. I'll take that question. Yeah. I mean, I was trying to think about this too. Like the first season, right. Is like totally like episodic, like, not murder of the week, but like issue of the week situation. And it becomes cohesive sort of like at the end, there's like a few episodes that then like become cohesive. Season two, like picks right up with that. And then we're in it. And there's like a much longer arc to the season. There like stuff that gets like seated in episode one is like cashed in in episode nine, right? Like there's, there's much more cohesion And the thing that I felt about this season was like, one, there is also like this ratchets up the cohesion like times a million because you have the page thread, you have the like Philip soul searching thread, you have the Martha stuff, like everything is getting ratcheted up. But the other thing that I think is very cool about this season is you also get there were so many moments that were like cool spy stuff. So the show has like learned how to both give us a kind of cohesive, like here is what's here's like, here are the the different playing fields that we're, that we're like playing on and also give us those like smaller, more, I I don't want to call them quotidian, but like more like micro instances that you're getting this like, oh, this is, like, such a spy show, and also it has this emotional payoff, too. Like, both of those things together make make it feel like they've kind of figured something out in this season to bring those pieces together that don't necessarily always go together. Right. I've, we talked a lot in the season two interview episode, of course, about the Jared reveal. Yeah. Right? And the fact that Jared killed his parents was going to be the first second-generation <laughs> illegal, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a way in which that reveal its reverberations are part of i think what has shifted the show yeah because one of the closing scenes of season two is philip confronts arcadi and the bookstore at the magazine rack oh and it's like we're never going to let this happen you know there's a moment where they tell claudia we're never going to let this happen 
And then here we have Gabriel on the scene and like Elizabeth has shifted from yeah. season the end of very, very end of season two into season three to being open or maybe even trying to achieve this page situation mm-hmm. and recruit her. We have Philip increasingly um, or maintaining his same level of heightened resistance to that. And then we have Paige herself blowing the whole situation up by forcing the matter in the way that we talked about with Lily. So there's something about how the after effects of the second season and some of the major like OMG plot reveals of season two set us up for a lot more of the familial work the i think quotidien quotidien is the correct word actually because yeah. like think about how many times we got a version of a conversation between philip and elizabeth in their bedroom or in their bathroom or at the travel agency about what do we do about Paige and about yeah. some conflict between the two of them and also I'd have to go back and look and maybe talk to our friend mike about this but i get the sense that there's a little bit more time compression in this season. I think that's right. Um, than in season one or season two. Is, at least that's the sense that I got. And so whether it's true or not, like that's working on me as a viewer, at least in that way. I think that that's right. The time compression is a real, I mean, those are all really good points, but the time compression is a really good point. And I think that that is, is accurate. I, I think the other piece of it, which I think is related to this time question, is that, it feels like it the show was more connected to its like staged political context and not that it was disconnected before but like that context is not just like one episode here or there right which we which we got a little bit in in season 2 like when it came sure. in it was important but it wasn't always there there was something about like the looming political context in this season that like that I think is related to this time issue that you're bringing up. The other thing, just to pick up on a thread that that you introduced, sort of thinking about the Philip Elizabeth relationship and their like the intimacy between them, all of these conversations in the bedroom and at work, and like it seemed like their conflict was like both deepened this season, but also that the stakes of the conflict were different. It it was no longer like, I'm going to leave you. It was more like, like, this is life or death. And how do you not see it like that? There was no longer like, oh, I'm going to break up with you over this. It was like, this is an existential question that we have to figure out together, even if we're not on the same page about it. What a terrible Ooh, <laughs> look at that. She landed it perfectly. She tried not to. <laughs> <laughs> and that's an interesting point because it, I think, highlights one of the contrasts from season one to season three. Okay. And then in season one, the question that animates the first couple episodes of the Americans that have ever existed were, should they defect to the U.S. fully? Yeah. Right? And Philip kind of wants to do it. Yeah. But that question resolves somewhat quickly in favor mm. of no, we're continuing to do the thing that we've been doing. Contrast that with the perhaps slower moving in an extremely good way, season three, 
where there's a more ability to kind of linger and muddle through the morass of the situation with Paige, right? Like a worse version of the Americans would be uh, season three, episode three, Paige finds out, season three, episode five, Paige is on board, the rest of season three, Paige is in training, and five finale of season three is Paige's first mission and something goes wrong. That would be a faster moving, less willing to kind of feel its way through the emotional circulations of the spy work and the kind of yeah. psychodynamics of yeah. the family work. So there's something about the slow down nature of season three that I think enables a lot of what we have responded to particularly with regards to Paige, but also with regards to other plots as well. Well, yeah. And I think like the, the beyond Paige, the, the plot that jumps out at me that, that matches what you're saying is the Philip Kimmy plot, right? right. Yes. That like we are front rows, we have front row seats to like the development of that relationship and we are seeing it piece by piece be built. We are seeing Philip's discomfort. We are seeing like all these pieces that like in earlier seasons, we would just like jump cut to now, like she's his operative in the way that like she needs to be. And there's something about that slowing down that like gives us it. it for me, it like it pulls me in because it gives us like the emotional terrain to like unfold over. Yeah, and let's talk about the Kimmy part for for a little while because that's crucial in at least two ways for Philip, right? It's Mm -hmm. crucial in that he hates having to do this full stop. And secondly, he hates having to do this even more because of, and this then feeds back into what they're trying to do with regards to Paige, right? There's the Kimmy being a year older. There's the, you know he gets a music recommendation from Kimmy to give to Paige. Wild. He gets Paige's religious stuff to then go and tell Kimmy that he's going to, he needs to pray and they're going to pray together. And like, that's how they're consummating their relationship. So there's like the back and forthness and the lack of ability of Philip to maintain boundaries that he absolutely to like maintain any of his sense of self or any of his cohesiveness yeah. needs to be able to, to keep up. At the very same time, the things with Martha are crumbling by virtue of the bug being found in the in the pen in the office. Yeah. And so let's like also let's talk about like the Martha of it all, because that feels like the other it doesn't feel like it is like season defining, but it feels close to it. And I think part of why I don't. Which moment in particular? I mean, (laughs) Because there's there's so many incredible three minutes of what is you know caused by the pen that is the actant. Honestly, some of our best. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's like the first moment that Martha realizes that Walter Taffet has Clark's job, right? It's like the first interaction that Clark and Martha have after that is to me, like when, like when she's like breaking down, but she hasn't quite told him why she's breaking down yet. Like, 
but we're getting the breakdown. And, and part of why to me, this isn't the season defining moment is because it feels like it has not worked. We haven't gotten through it. Like, not that we've gotten through the page stuff, Mm -hmm. but like the trajectory of that, like there are two ways it could go. I'm pretty sure I know which way it's going to go. The Martha stuff. I'm. Just, you want to make a dossier prediction? I mean, I <laughs> I think in terms of Paige, like I don't think Pastor Tim's going to believe her. I think he's going to think. I think I said this in another episode too. Like I don't think Pastor Tim's going to believe her. I I think like like this is maybe where a relationship with Pastor Tim starts to change. I'm not sure how, but like. I guess there's a version of this where Pastor Tim's like, yeah, your parents are spies. And, like, let's bring them to the police. But I just really can't. That wouldn't be an interesting show. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not, like, it's not what what we're we're set up for, right? Like, Pastor Tim, while being Paige's friend, and I'm putting that in very heavy quotation Mm, marks in mm -hmm, a creepy way, mm -hmm. is also... Is that going in the dossier? No, God, please no. Well, he's not Catholic, so he's on the list. <laughs> Pastor Tim is on the list. Okay, all <laughs> <Nice>. right. <laughs> Thank you. Nice. Sean Hanley will be proud that the list got a shout <laughs> That's out. All I, all I want in my life. Pastor Tim's mo does not seem to be to like thrust a wedge between Paige and her parents, though that is often like what his presence is doing. He doesn't seem to want that as much as Paige seems to like need that. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting way of phrasing it. Also, Pastor Tim, I don't know if they've got the money at Reed Street Church to hire like 29 security guards to prevent Philip from getting back into the rectory. Yeah. <laughs> Pastor Tim is going to get fucked up. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but the like to come back to the Clark Martha stuff, that does not feel like it like that doesn't feel like the trajectory is clear. I'm surprised Martha is still alive. In fact, I'm a season into being surprised Martha is still alive. I mean, that's the that's the key theme in Mike's dossier of dossiers for season three. Is like every episode Martha is, is dying in the next episode. So, but honestly, like if you hadn't seen the rest of it, that's that's a valid read on this. Yes, and it's a testament to the show that they let the situation be in this like pure uncertainty flux scenario totally because it lets them you know i asked you okay well what is then the defining scene of the martha coming into knowledge yeah that there are so many to choose from is the mark of the show willing to engage in that kind of depth and engage in that kind of like serious intentional work to think about how this could actually happen in this totally like weird and unlikely scenario yeah, and, and I I, th- I think my answer is uh, is Philip pulling the wig off. Yeah, like taking the hair slowly, taking the hairpins hair out and out. pulling the wig off. Well, and that was also like that was where my my brain was between like the Martha sort of like breaking down without telling him yet, and and like Clark becoming Philip. It's like one of those, right? Whoo, mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah. And I think, I mean, we may be even t- a little bit short shrift even to, to the Kimmy plot line, in part because that's a place where I think a lot of the emotional <laughs> development or stunting of the characters 
crosses streams with the kind of broader political context um, to some extent, but yeah. Just thinking about like Clark, Martha, I always forget what Philip's name is when he's with Kimmy. Jim. Jim, right. One syllable white. James, Jim. Right, 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 right. Philip is doing an insane amount of emotional labor this season in these entanglements. One are obviously very hard on him because like where he gets to at the end of the season is just like an inability to like see beyond his fingertips, right? He's like in the densest of fogs. In an episode in which he kills Jean. Yeah. Because he feels he has to for Martha. And in, a, and in an episode in which he go keeps going to Est graduate seminars and, Wild. you know, seriously considering Sandra's um, you know, proposition t- <laughs> of, like, let's be totally honest with one another. Let's have an emotional affair, essentially. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. One way, one way to put it. And, like, it's striking against, like... I don't want to say Elizabeth's lack of emotion because obviously that's not the case. She has the whole thing with her mom. Like it is a lot for her, but like there's some, I guess like there's some really interesting gendered conventions being upended or disrupted, like in thinking Philip and Elizabeth alongside each other around Hmm. like emotional investment. And let, can we tease that out a little yeah. bit? So, like, when when I hear you say that, I think Elizabeth is the one who's presented as the cold, yeah. rational thinker, yeah. instrumental thinker, and Philip is uh, depicted as the one who's constantly awash in his own feelings and the feelings of the circulations and like kinship relationships that he's a part of. Yeah, I think that that's right. And also, like, I would say, in addition to simply being awash in them, he is, like, deeply embedded in these strategic relationships that require substantial emotional work that, like, Elizabeth is not embedded in those same things. And it follows that she's sort of the rational one and he's the emotional one, but also, like, the kinds of expectations around them are, to me, are, like, are not the expectations that we typically assign to, like, female-presenting or male-presenting characters, which Mm -hmm. I think is, like... I don't know. I think for the audience is productive that we get this sort of like this flip flop. Yeah. And it raises the, uh, you know, one thing that we talked about, I think this was on in the season two in review episode was there's a way in which like Soviet gender ideology is, is at work as well in here and how that cashes out into the actual family dynamics of the Jennings is, is notable, especially when we have the, uh, our favorite, Mostly absent child, Henry. Henry. Oh, Henry. Just lusting after (laughs) Sandra. (laughs) And that weird bikini shot. (laughs) Yeah. And coming with the jokes. And... No thank you for the jokes. We do not need Eddie Murphy. Okay. So the pre-Eddie Murphy jokes are good. Agree. The when Pastor Tim and his wife come over for dinner and... (laughs) He's like, what is asked? Is it a cult? 
no, it's that one, but also when like Philip and Henry like are and everyone like runs to the door and then oh yeah, <laughs> I don't can't remember if it's like Philip. I think it's Henry like cracks a joke like oh we should all wait for him right like <laughs> yeah like, something okay. like that. Pre Eddie Murphy, he was funny. Now he's just like someone in needs to get this blackface. I don't yeah, know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's uh, he's if he was in. T- 2022 he would be about to be radicalized <laughs> by andrew tate um Real all right talk. <laughs> so let me read a quote from one of these reviews that i want to get your reaction yeah. on. there are two and i'll and i have one that's probably a little bit more in response to what we've talked to talked about so far and i have another that could maybe set up a direction to go um subsequently okay so here, do you, I'll, I'll put the quote in the Google Doc for you so you can actually read it, and then I will read it to our audience okay. in this uh, audio medium. Okay. Um, so this is from Sean T. Collins in his review of the finale. Okay. Many of the guns the Americans loaded in its third season failed to go off in its final episode. The Russian double agent was exposed quietly. Stan Beeman's scheme to rescue his imprisoned lover Nina quietly paid off in the form of his free reign at the Bureau. Nina herself reached an understanding with the scientists she'd been ordered to spy on that didn't result in trouble for either of them. Martha wasn't murdered for knowing too much. The Daniel Dossier entry. Exactly. Uh, continuing, no, all that happened was that three, me- three members of a family have found themselves completely adrift from one another in a way that will almost cause one or more of them to drown. This kind of confident restraint is rare on television even now. Thus, The Americans ends its third season as one of the very best shows on air. It's so funny. Thoughts, reactions. Okay, so my first thought was, I... Usually when you start a review with, like, failed to do X, you don't end with, like, this is the best show in the world. So, like, wild turn... The, oh, I love it. No, it I love it. It makes too. me feel so good. No, 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 no. I love it too. I could not like the, I couldn't help but think like if this had happened now, I can hear Andy both saying exactly this and also saying the exact opposite of this. Like we're set up for like, it, I can hear like the watch guys, like, instead of taking the turn that Shanti Collins makes at the end, like this is the best, uh, one of the best shows on air. Like I can hear Andy and Chris be like, you know, they went big, but it really just failed. It didn't work. Like I hope like, right. Did, didn't pay off, you know, what yeah. it set up like that kind of stuff. Because I, it's striking, I guess, I guess like what I'm trying to like, what I'm trying to mumble through is like, it's striking that quiet confidence is something that is being rewarded at this moment because I don't really think that the same kind of quiet confidence in a finale would be rewarded today. I think there's a couple of shows that would be an exception to that. Um, I actually think Better Call Saul is an example of something that even in today's, you know, uh, TV landscape, yeah. to use my required TV podcasting union phrase, um, in today's <laughs> TV landscape, that is, I think, the an exemplar of the kind of confident restraint. Confident restraint is the phrase that mm-hmm. Collins uses here. Um, and I think that that is actually, I never thought of the Americans and better call Saul is doing similar things, yeah. but actually they are right. What the Americans does for never the spy <laughs> world better call Saul does for the 
Albuquerque drug war oh. <laughs> of Breaking Bad, right? Okay. In a certain way. So like that, that's a that's an interesting uh yeah, yeah, yeah. resonance. But the confident restraint is obviously something that I'm into. I would prefer the show set the things up and not and intentionally and like with purpose mm-hmm. keep them moving, keep them kind of adrift in, in there because like the Martha stuff like probably comes to some resolution at some point, yeah. right? Their Stan's situation has changed, right? He is in a he's no longer in point A, but he's now in point B. Like there are things that have changed and things that have quote unquote paid off, but it's the restraint and not being like we need a dramatic payoff to every single one of these to yeah. knock them down. The kind of parallel I would make is that the show kind of telegraphs this confident restraint in the Stingers episode, right? Which obviously we talked yeah. about Lily. And there's something we discussed in that episode, which I'm now thinking about even more, mm-hmm. was how structurally and narratively like genius that episode was. That that is the quote unquote gum that goes off in this season. And it's the Stingers episode and like the real Stingers are the hard yeah. family conversations we had along the way. I love that analysis. I do have a I, the only like bone to pick that I have that I have here is I think that like he's mischaracterizing what's happened with Stan. Oh please. So the the sentence here is Stan Beeman's scheme to rescue his imprisoned lover Nina quietly paid off in the form of his free reign at the bureau, and I obviously see how those things are connected, but I like I think it's a mischaracterization to call this a gun that didn't go off but instead it seems like it's more a sort of manic wielding of a gun where you don't actually know like where you're gonna hit but you fire it anyway like Mm -hmm. it's it's more chaotic yeah i i I agree with that and i think that that's on clearly on purpose from the creators Yeah, yeah, yeah in the sense that the thing that he gets rewarded for and his motivations as a character are actually two very different things. And it's only in Stan bad at his job chaos that they yeah. end up getting intertwined. The thing he gets rewarded for is that he maybe is able to turn Oleg, that he showed initiative to be able to go and do that. That is the thing that the deputy AG is rewarding him for at the end of this season. The inciting incident and motivation for Stan Beeman Mm -hmm. is not, I'm trying to get a spy in the KGB through Oleg. It's uh, my person that I love and fell head over heels for in a fucked up way. Uh, I want to get her back. and I'm going to do any wild ass plan that is possible to try to make it happen. That's that's what he was doing. Yeah. And it's like the intention action are actually different things. Right, right, right. And I think that's what I'm trying to capture with the like, I'm like firing a gun all around and Mm -hmm. wherever it hits, it Mm -hmm. hits. Like it clearly hit. The gun has been fired. But like, you're right that there's a disconnect between intention and like, and like action or intention and consequence. Yeah. Whew. Oh, do you want me to unpack quotes? Uh, yeah, I'm an expert at it. <laughs> it's literally my job. <laughs> literally my job. I give my students handouts and they're like, there's a very long quote on this. And I was like, 
aren't you happy that I didn't ask you to bring the reading with you and I put the quote on the page? <laughs> Serious, seriously. <laughs> and I did ask you to bring a reading with you. Right. No, well, you I, this is the difference between you and I. Like, I don't even set myself up to be disappointed in that way because I'm like, I'm just going to give them the quote that I want to talk about. Like, that's what we're going to do. Right, you're implying that sometimes in my life, personally or professionally, I set myself up to be disappointed. This is news to me. Never. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate your, like, I'm going to call it eternal hope, even oh if it's God. misfired. <laughs> that's, that's, that hope is as well-targeted as Stan's chaotic, wildly firing <laughs> his gun in all directions. I just have picture of stan like as a kind of like his arms going as kind of like wiley coyote's legs or mm-hmm. roadrunner's yeah. legs and he's a and he's like a, a limmy guy like those yeah. are big limbs to be flailing around oh my god i wish i do wish there was like a, a like that someone had like an acid trip in this show and so we got like a cartoon montage <laughs> <laughs> do you know that's not coming i don't but i can't it doesn't feel <laughs> like the vibe here <laughs> True, true. So, um, yeah. All right. So, and on a f- just quick follow up point to yeah. that, then I have, then I have another quote for you that we'll, that we'll use as you a segue. I, love. Uh, I know you have all of those things. Is that so, Steph and Sasa, and this is not surprising. So, Collins and Sasa are often doing stuff together. Okay. Like they have a podcast together that's been 10 or 11 years in the running or something like that. Almost as many as How Does This Get Made? Okay. <laughs> But uh, he talks about season three's Stefan Sasa as the show slowing down, as the show shifting its perspective more from the victims to the perpetrators, mm-hmm. lingering more on the cleanup, being willing to depict various forms of physical and emotional pain even more, and emphasizing, as he calls it, quote, institutional storytelling. Okay. And so one of the, you know, so his, one of his his key scene, the defining moment of the season was the murder of Betty in the, um, in the mail robot repair yeah. facility. But his other kind of key moment was the stuffing Annalise in a suitcase. Which is like episode Two. three. Yeah. Two. Early on. Yeah. Listen, we love dismemberment. <laughs> let us talk about the Bacchae. We got did, you. did we talk about the Bacchae and I talked Honig about in that for the cave? Uh, ah, reading right, of right. the Bacchae. Right, right. Fair I right. remember. Yeah. That, that was in the long stretch of the season when you were carrying us on the dossier. Yeah, but I feel or like... Or on the, on the cave. I feel like at the end, you carried us, so... I mean, I did do Latour, so I'm going to take some credit for that. You did Latour. You also did Charles Mills, which is tough. Yeah, that was not so tough. <laughs> it feels hard for me. Um, you could have done a better job than I could have, but so I just think that 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 resonates with a lot of what we had been discussing. So let's then talk about one of the themes that I think we spent a little bit less time on this season, Uh even as you correctly pointed out earlier, just in this episode, it's increasingly a part of the show. And that is the way in which the Jennings family is an allegory through their spying is something about nations and nationalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and loyalty and patriotism and all of that. So another Shanti Collins quote, because we know I love Shanti you Collins. You love Shanti quotes. Collins. This is a Shanti Collins stand podcast. Oh, no, that's the truth. Um, so he writes about this final episode of season three. Philip tries to describe how he's starting to feel about what he does. 
He stammers. He can't quite get it out. And just when he's about to, hold on, Elizabeth interrupts him, moving toward the television on which the president speaks. We should listen to this. The personal is jettisoned in favor of the political, a decision that's as personal as it gets. You'd love to see it. Philip is left alone with his thoughts, Elizabeth with hers. And as their daughter rats them out to her pastor, Ronald Reagan tells an audience of nothing but pastors that people like the Jennings, quote, are the focus of evil in the modern world, end quote. Two out of three Jennings, at least, appear to agree, end quote. There's a lot what happening you, in that What would quote. you like to do with that? I Like, this is what the part I'm stuck on. And as their daughter rats them out to her pastor, Ronald Reagan tells the audience of nothing but pastors uh, that people like the Jennings are the focus of evil in the modern world. Two out of the three Jennings, at least, appear to agree. On the one hand, it's like, oh, that's chilling because, like, yeah, Philip totally agrees and obviously Paige agrees. Yeah. But I also, like, the thing it makes me think about is I think Elizabeth agrees too, just agrees in a different way and, and like, Ooh. agree, like, is not bothered by the evil in the modern world, right? Like, that there's a kind of, like, means ends thing that happens with Elizabeth that I think, like, I don't think she would balk at the, like, evil label. Maybe I'm just, like, being crazy, but, like, I don't know. There's something about it where I'm like, I don't know. I think, like, the, like, maybe evil's not the right metric here. That's, I think, what her response would be, that evil is not the yeah. right metric. It's, I'm committed to the proper, just, and universal cause. Yeah. And you your judgment of good or evil doesn't bear on any of that. And, like, you can't see, and, like, this is what she says, to, part of what she says to Philip, but it's yeah. not the first time she said that to Philip, right? Like, you can't see like the way that things should be like you've lost your you're off your access you've lost your like your um like grounding point or, or center of gravity or whatever it is some people might call what i do evil but like that's not the that's not actually an issue here at issue is like something bigger than that yeah so both collins and hudson called attention to the structure of that final scene of season three, where Philip is trying to express how absolutely fucking terrible he feels yeah. about himself, his family, what he does, etc. And it gets interrupted by Reagan mm-hmm. to then vocalize that as Paige, and they're cutting back and forth as Paige is vocalizing a s- s- different version of that. Yeah. They're liars, right? They're liars yeah. in another room. I feel like we have to treat Philip, Elizabeth, and Paige differently in regard to this. Maybe what I'm bristling at is like it feels too simplistic to to apply this sort of like to Philip. That's I I want to both I want to both agree and disagree with you if that's okay. Oh, our fo- our first both end of the episode. We're forty four <laughs> minutes in. That's honestly impressive. We we should be fired for. We literally that should long. be fired from our <laughs> non paying job. <laughs> right. Um, we spend money on. We this literally pay for, for this podcast. <laughs> um, but uh, you know we're happy to selectively take on ads. Okay. Um, Only part- for like things that we agree with. <laughs> yes. So I agree in the sense that (laughs) Philip actually 
is open to maintaining more ethical and moral ambiguity than Elizabeth is, right? I think there's just more general room for gray area, so to speak, for Philip as a character, in part because of his own ambiguity about his relationship to spying, his relationship to the Soviet Union, his relationship to the U.S., his relationship to what he does and all of those kinds of things. Uh So in that sense, yes, like the rubric of evil is out of step with the like complexity or or irresolution of Philip's kind of ethical um, composure. But on the other hand, and here's then the and of the both and we love, he does do a lot of things that it's clear he thinks are evil in this season, right? Entrapping Kimmy. And if he actually had to have sex with her, like I think is a crossing of a line that he sees as some sort of, moral mostly absolute mm-hmm. converting page he gives into but he's i think he, i think he believes is fundamentally wrong killing gene yeah like absolutely wrong in his book it seems to me so like i think that and maybe what we're getting at is that philip is conflicted over how conflicted he can feel yeah and is able to feel and does feel that might be i that's maybe a better way to capture the like complexity of like Philip's turmoil. Cause I just, I guess like that's like the, the part of the quote that's like, Oh, it's just like another, another Jennings agrees here too. It's like, Oh, well, yeah, but also no. And, and also like all of these other layers that, that maybe if we don't get, if we don't look at those, we kind of discounts like big pieces of the season. It does. But like, when has Philip felt good about what he's doing this season? Or at least okay with what he's doing. This when season. has Philip felt good about anything in this series? He felt good when about got, buying the car. <laughs> yeah, I was, exactly, I was gonna say the car, and I think he genuinely likes racquetball with Stan. We didn't get any racquetball this <laughs> but season. But no, no racquetball. There's the puzzle that unlocks it all. More racquetball, less communism. <laughs> That's what Reagan should have tried. Oh my god! But I think the you know the orientation of Collins's quote there is also to consider that this season traverses a period where Reagan is indeed accelerating like Reagan cold war bullshit and cold warrior bullshit, right? Whether it is, um, I mean, star Wars stuff, whether it is, or maybe that's next season apologies. Um, okay. maybe it's, it's definitely the evil empire speech. It's, mm-hmm the final episode where Stan gets commended rather than chastised by the deputy AG. We have like all of these ways in which, you know, we have the Afghanistan situation on the heels of Iran Contra situation, which are, of course, all this is tied together. Yeah. Like there's in Reagan covert action, nonsense and illegality and violence. So there's just a way in which there's more in the background of our episodes, not necessarily of the show itself, has been some of the Cold War stuff. And of course, the emotional kind of twist on that ends up being that we know that Philip's son Misha is in Afghanistan, according to Gabriel. Well, and that he like refused to like be given leave, essentially. Yes. Yes. Which is like another piece of this, right? Like Absolutely. Listen, it's complicated, and it's satisfying in how complicated it is. Fully agree with you. 
Can I make kind of one more point about like what's different about this season or this show before we get into some of the dossier and looking ahead yeah. stuff? So as you know, Danielle, I've spent um, some time recently watching the first two seasons of Homeland, I, and because I never, I never watched it, and the two watching, best seasons of Homeland, the only two I will watch. <laughs> the experience of watching those first two seasons over a few weeks of Homeland gave me such a deeper and greater appreciation for the Americans yeah. because. Like, okay, I guess a couple of the action-y, high-stakes, high-drama things in Homeland are arguably more action-y and drama-y than the Americans. But just as a pure quality of show in terms of emotional depth and in terms of writing dialogue and in terms of realistic-seeming people Mm. in totally unrealistic-seeming experiences. Like, the Americans has all of those things. Homeland sucks at all of those things. (laughs) But I loved every second that I watched of it. So, you know, it's problematic all over the place. So, two things. One is, like, a very classic Danielle thing. So... I know exactly what's going to come next, yes. so please do it. Like, the Homeland is based on an Israeli show, which translates to Prisoners of War, which is way better, <laughs> one. And, like, the context for it is, like, much closer to, like, it's much closer to when the show is being produced. It's, like, much closer to home. It is, like, a real thing that, that people are consistently afraid of, like, in Israel. That show is also, like, overdramatic in, in similar ways, but, like, in, like, a it's a better version of it. So that's the first thing. <laughs> Um, I was correct in my yeah, self-prediction of what I was, was going to go next. there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and, and like, and like, right. The issue there I think is know your audience. And I think like that show in Israel is like a total success, right. Or it was a total success when it comes out. And it's because it's like something people are excited to consume. And that is the version that like, dramatization of stuff is the version of things that like Israeli audiences like, like in particularly in this way, Homeland. It's like, there are pieces of that show that I love. Like I will watch Mandy Patinkin, like eat a sandwich. Like I do (laughs) not care. Well, you do get to watch him like eat some like peanut butter on bread when he's like holed up in this, being held in some CIA room at the end of season two. I will watch him do anything. I will watch him literally read lines from a piece of paper from the old Princess Bride, like anything. I will watch him do anything. (laughs) During the pandemic, I like with one of my sisters watched, um, he's like on a bunch of criminal minds. Like I watched a bunch of that. And when he stopped being on, I was like, I no longer want to watch this. So I'll watch him do anything. And the like, Claire Danes's acting ability is also just like off the charts. Now, does she get maybe too much to do like with that acting ability? <laughs> yes. Did the manic <laughs> scenes need to be as manic as they were? Please no. God, no. 
the like weird plot line, right? Season two is when he's like got to be in the vice president's office. Is that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And mm-hmm. like the pacemaker and all of that. It's like mm-hmm. it didn't yeah. have to be that complicated. The season one version of it is actually like the feels like a like a better way to go about it all. Anyway, this is all to say I'm with you on the like, oh, it's like too much and and like overwritten and, and, and also overacted. And mm-hmm. also like all of the different actors are not in the same show. And that's never the case in the Americans. Like it feels like for the it's most part, one. the actors are all in this show and they know they're in the show. They're in the show together. Like it is a collaborative collective thing. And I wonder if that's the other piece of like what you're bumping up against, which is like, oh, they're not in the same show. I might enjoy like a version of this where we were in the, I don't know, the Mandy Patinkin version of the show or whatever it is. (laughs) I love him so much. (laughs) Follow him on Twitter. He's very funny. He does not know how to use a phone. It's hilarious. Him and his wife are the funniest people in the entire world. I don't have a lot for performative. I don't know how to use my phone. It's not performative. It's not like I don't know how to use my phone. It's like his wife will just be like, I've been trying to take this picture for two hours. And the son is like, Mom, you're literally an idiot. It's like what (laughs) happens in my house. It's like what happens in my parents' house. (laughs) So I think the thing that I will pick up on from what you said there is. I can't can't even imagine you can find anything in there. But (laughs) I'm going to try. And (laughs) no, not to don't apologize. No, not at all. Is that. It links back to something that we discussed at the beginning of this episode. And the point of connection, I think, is where you got to at the end in the sense of all of the actors are acting in the same show. And one of the things that allows them to be able to do that Mm -hmm. is the slow build, is the guns that don't go off, right? Because, like, one season worth of plot in the American season three worth of plot in the Americans is four episodes of Homeland three episodes of Homeland. So yeah. And like, it's clear which kind of show me and my well-established canonical on NQGB pretentiousness uh, would prefer. That's fair. I'm like, yeah. Should we go to the dossier? Let's go to the dossier. Mostly because, right. as you can tell, I'm starting to get more unhinged than I was when we started. And so... I don't I don't think so. So, first, let's celebrate your wins of okay. the dossier, which is Zineda is a spy. From the jump. Jean, you claimed as a win. I'm still questionable on that. <laughs> well, but, he's okay. dead, so... <laughs> well, he's dead. So that feels a little bit like a win. Uh-huh. Um, I called Pastor Tim, Pastor Time, once in these notes. That's something that stood out to me about them. But that's because I was thinking about the Loki chapter that we're about to Ugh, so. Amazing. What a great segue. <laughs> I think, ultimately, the clear theme of Season 3 Dossier is... One, Martha, in her impending doom. Yeah. And the many different scenarios you've imagined. <laughs> Still nothing beat our season two finale <laughs> prediction. What did I say there? Wait, what is it? Uh, I just want to quote. Yeah. I just want to quote from the dossier. Martha <laughs> will pull off to pay while Clark is going down on her. Arrow reveal. Arrow Martha's death. Listen, I maintain that that would have been a better version of this. (laughs) (laughs) And we did love the version that happened in the the show, but that would have been even better. It should have been like, here's how it works. Oh, my God. 
Because <laughs> you can't believe I'm going to do this. I'm just remembering, like, that... First of all, that, like, organically came about when you, John, and I were talking. Like, that organically <laughs> arose from our interaction. Talk about unhinged and unwell. I don't know if I've ever laughed so hard, but then this season finale episode, I also laughed really hard, so. Because? Just in general. I feel like oh, when okay. Keller's on, like, it's when it's like when you, me, and Keller are all firing on all cylinders, it is like <laughs> bonkers town. All cylinders <laughs> is one way to think about that. <laughs> I've got about one and a half out of six, and they're going in the wrong I direction. I literally don't know what day it is right now. So, <laughs> like, am I in Greece yet? What's happening here? Yeah, great question. So, I'm not. I mean, any any observations about the dossier of Dossier? I think the Martha-ness of it all is what stands out. And yeah. we've covered a little bit about both why the show would lead one to yeah. always coming to Martha and the dossier, but then why it's good that the dossier was wrong. So I think the other thing that... that I, I, it's not that I'm salty about it, but I do want to just put it out there. Why did we have to learn so much about the Pastor Tim Kenya trip if they're not going to use it as some kind of cover? That honestly feels like a like a thing that they messed up. Mm, so there was an actual red herring, you think? E, well, or or there or there's not even enough intentional no, use of it to be a red herring. But it's like we heard about that Kenya trip like six times. Like who cares? No comment. Okay, I guess like. <laughs> I guess we're going to hear more about the Kenya trip. Maybe Pastor <laughs> Tim will get like will get like knocked off in Kenya. What if I told you the title of season four, episode two, was Pastor Tim? Is it? How would you feel about that? Wait, you have the ti- you have the it, it, that, not me. That's a that's a Mike Rensink uh, production. That's wild. Well, <laughs> I guess we're going to Kenya. <laughs> Buckle up. I appreciate the pageness of yeah. the Daniel Bassier and obviously, you know, Chekhov's page, et cetera, does indeed fire, so to speak, um, as a stinger missile, if you will. Another thing that I appreciate about your dossier entries is, and I think this speaks How well of both, they are. <laughs> of both you and the show, looking over that comment, is that there's so many ways in which the show is willing to have minor characters yeah. or semi-minor characters have potential import for the show as a whole that you are always on the lookout for that, right? So, like, we have yeah. we have Sandy's paramour. We have... Um, oh, my God. Forgot yeah, about we him. have uh, Tatiana is in here. Tori is in here a couple of times. Jean, obviously, is, is part of the dossier. So... Right? So there's all these characters that like you, you think the show is capable of incorporating into a major revelatory twist or moment or plot development. Here is why Homeland did that to me. Mm. Did you, I think it's, it must be in season three, but maybe it's in season two where I'm going to spoil something for Homeland. I'm not going to watch it. That was more for our listeners (laughs) because I know that you're not watching anymore. But it already might have happened. Mandy Patinkin's wife is like, they have like some open marriage or like mm-hmm. don't ask, don't tell situation. Yeah. Right. Um, and she's sleeping with someone who then like 
gets files from their computer. I think did that happen? Did you that, see that? No, that must be. A I think it's three. season three. So like, I feel like part of why I'm like always on the lookout is because I'm like, well, that's what happens when like you're like somehow connected to the CIA. <laughs> Everyone wants your information. Yeah, no, it's a great point. What is one other random Homeland point? Yeah. Me watching Homeland is a little bit, I imagine, how our friend John Keller watches The Americans, where it's all remembered nostalgia. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because it's like, it's... It's er- it's the Bush era. Yeah. Like, it's... Or the Bush and early Obama era, I guess. Yeah. Well, Obama, of course, who was, who was like a huge fan of the show, which is tells you a lot about what you need to know about... Uh, John? A lot of people were huge president. fans of that show. <laughs> no, I know. I know. But, like, he was, like, on record multiple times about it and... If he was on record multiple times saying how much he loved the Americans, would you? Would it make you hate the Americans? Maybe. <laughs> wow! Really, really putting my commitment to the bit to the I test. Know. That's very <laughs> cruel. All right, should we maybe head towards a, a conclusion and think a little bit yeah. to, to season four? Like, what are you? Let's do most... that, and then I have a question for you. Oh, oh, let's end there. Yeah. Uh, a cliffhanger. Um, what are you anticipating in season four? Like, what are you looking forward to? What are you expecting? What are you anticipating? Well, now I'm expecting Pastor Tim to die. <laughs> um, no, I'm, I'm anticipating and looking forward to, and I think this is part of why I didn't love this finale, which I'm on the record saying. Um, I think part of what I'm looking forward to is wrapping up the Martha stuff. I actually like, it feels like a weight around our necks right now that like that hasn't wrapped up. Um, and I, obviously it makes sense why it hasn't like the narrative, like the narrative, emotional development, all that. But like, I, I want that to wrap up. Uh I'm interested in the... How do you think it's wrapping up? Are you maintaining your dossier position of Martha's gone? I think, but I I think that it's not going to be Philip that kills her because I think he's, like, demonstrated that he's not capable of Mm -hmm. doing that. Yeah, Um, which I... I, That was, you got to somewhere around, like, episode 10, 11, 12. Yeah, I I think, like, the way we end with Elizabeth, her being like, you can't see anything, and, like, and and Gabriel says the same thing to him. I I think, I sense that we're about to have, like, someone else has got to take over this, this, uh, this stuff here. Yeah, that's, like, that's where I'm at with Martha. I think that there's, I'm interested to see the fallout with Paige telling Pastor Tim, not because I think Pastor Tim is going to, going to believe her, but I'm interested to see how Philip and Elizabeth and Gabriel in the center, like, deal with all of this and i sort of sense that we're gonna get some more claudia which i don't love but here we are i seem to remember you being on record as saying actually gabriel gave you more appreciation for claudia he did but i still don't like claudia (laughs) (laughs) yeah i don't know those are like the things that i i like i'm really interested to see like stan unleashed because this was like Stan unleashed in hiding, and now we're gonna get like full throttle Stan, which is like could be wild. Terrifying. <laughs> is he just gonna be a white supremacist? Like I don't know. <laughs> All right, I will. I will ask one more season four specific question, yeah. and then I will turn it over to you. Um, season four, episode one is called Glanders. 
do you want to take a wild guess as to who or what Glanders is? Is it just like, like what's what's the first thing that comes into your brain? Ned Flanders' gay cousin. <laughs> <laughs> okay, assuming this is not a Simpsons crossover, what's the second thought? Literally, I have I have none. <laughs> like okay. nothing. No nothing i'm it seems like that's a last name of someone that's like gonna come in maybe that's the person that kills martha like i don't know all right i appreciate the guest i mean so we're, we're on this spreadsheet you have only episode names um any any you have wild theories about or particular anticipation for clark's place mm-hmm. the magic of david copperfield feels like a wild episode title <laughs> Munchkins. <laughs> Ooh, I'm excited for who is persona non grata. Okay, that's the season four yeah. finale. Okay, who? What's your prediction? Who's going to be persona non grata? I feel like it has to be Elizabeth. Okay, that's like that feels like where the where the narrative's going. Like we're real down on Philip right now, but something tells me like Elizabeth's gonna. There's. Maybe it's the page stuff. I don't know. But I, it feels like Elizabeth is that. All right. I appreciate you being willing to entertain my extremely unfair questions. I mean, I'm about to ask you an unfair question. Oh, no. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> let's let's go to the unfair question. This is this is the benefit of me being like, I planned for six minutes, Dan, which is maybe a minute or two more than Danielle for this episode. So I got to steer it. Yeah. So I got to pose. Well, and this. I am a brain dead. So I was like glad S- to have John fan. steer. Um, okay. So one of the things that you and I joke about, obviously, is that like this, all of this is the cave, right? Like we're political theorists. We can't (laughs) not be political theorists all the time. We're, I'm making jokes about like textual analysis of, of like critics quotes, everything's political theory. So we took a lot of theorists into the cave with us this, um, this season. We like introduced or like really like hit our stride with theory ship. This season, I think everybody had to read Foucault at some point. <laughs> Feels sure. like our actually. I was as I've been like I was editing the episodes or like listening to things we publish. We had Henry read Foucault. Several I'm, times. I'm sure. Like he seems like the one that needs to do the most reading. <laughs> um, but I'm wondering if there is any if there's anyone you feel like we've like left on the table that in thinking back through the season, like we didn't get to bring someone in or like, uh, like another thinker text that feels like it's maybe doing some explanatory work that we didn't get a chance to, to, to talk about, or like a theory ship that's sort of lingering for you. John's looking at his bookshelf. Okay. Uh, wild answer here. Love it. Uh, Spinoza. I okay. think like, yeah. I think Baruch, it needs to, needs to make his way into the cave with us. Yeah. I'm surprised he hasn't already to be quite honest. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's one that maybe we left on the table. There's some of, some of the Philip things I think could are, are Spinoza a bull. Yeah. So I think that's one of them. I think we purposely tried not to do Machiavelli in this season. Yeah. Maybe we did do Machiavelli because he's been a, he's been a common refrain. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of an obvious one. You know, I think that there, you know, sadly, I think there's more Hannah Arendt on the table for us. Totally. Um, but that's also because that's not like a person that either of us specialize in particularly. Yeah. Not that that necessarily prevents us from doing some wild I mean, dives into the cave um, in this episode. Do you specialize honestly, in Latour? You nailed it. 
And I do not specialize in Latour. That is for damn sure. Honestly, I think Plato's on this list. And that was the, so both Plato and Aristotle were there for me because like in thinking about the like geopolitical context of the season, it feels like there are questions of like citizenship, like souls and citizens and like that there's like that stuff but also the the plato part for me is like that there's maybe some like apology crito stuff that we haven't been that we haven't tapped into yet that i think is there um that i think connects back to like the the geopolitical like questions Mm, i like that i think the kind of plato that i'm considering one is (laughs) the like bad you reading of Plato as a communist. Um, and okay. the, and my I'll like en- entree into that is the, obviously the Soviet Union stuff, but specifically like I, I was thinking of the response to your question, the notion of our children to be raised in common yeah. for the benefit of the city for the yeah, in Plato yeah, yeah. is a little bit yeah. the disagreement that, yeah. Philip and Elizabeth has, right? For Philip, the kids are their kids yeah. and they're their kids and period. And for Elizabeth, they're children of the Soviet Union. Yeah. For the Soviet Union. So there's that part of it. Obviously, because we're interested in parallels and analogies and resonances, there's like always some mimesis stuff. Yeah. Or some the city and the soul analogy yeah, things. That was like a another little place bit, to go in the Republic. Yeah, I was that was part of what I was thinking about. I think the other like big set of things that is left on the table, and I think not because we're not interested in it, but it's like never the like first thing that jumps to mind. And a, we've brought a little bit of it into this season, I think again, because of the way the geopolitical context is, is like so much more present this season than it has been uh, in the past. But I think like there's a lot of like post-colonial theory that like we can get into, which I'm just excited to get into. Yeah. Which I mean, we, we, you, we went to the cave with Mills yeah. for the divestment episode, which made sense. But yeah, there's also yeah. where that is one of many places to do that. Um, the one other cave, I don't think we've, we've gone to the cave with her at all um, is Mary Wollstonecraft. Like, I think that there's some... Because I'm not interested. <laughs> <laughs> okay, will not share this podcast with Megan. Um... Oh, Megan knows that I'm not. No, I'm okay. happy for, like, people who are working on Mary Wollstonecraft, and Megan has a really cool article on, like, um, the gothic novel and, like, gothic violence in Mary Wollstonecraft, and I'm, like, very in the pocket for that stuff. But, like, I think this is a little bit of my resistance to Wollstonecraft is, is like a little bit unfair because it's, this is who people put on an intro syllabus to get a woman on the syllabus. It's a good point. Vibes. And, and yeah. that makes me really angry because it's like, there are so many more interesting women. like put Audre Lorde on your syllabus, like get out of here. Yeah. Well, we've got, we have Ann Phillips and Diva Woodley coming up this week in intro in my intro. So Diva Woodley was here yesterday and gave a talk on organizing as a political phenomenon. So like sort of summarizing like that fourth chapter yeah, um, and then building out of it. And just like I could listen to her talk for 5,000 years. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, one other person. Yeah. And I forget if we've gone to the cave with them is Lauren Berlant. <sighs> 
I feel like maybe early on in season one, we did like a, a brief Berlant, but like, I, yeah, I mean, I'm co-chairing a panel and trying to like get an edited volume together about their, um, their impact on political theorists. They're like lasting legacy in political theory. So yeah, we gotta, I think like, this is a, a good project. challenge for us. Like, we got a yeah. Berlant, some post-colonial theory. You can bring Wallstonecraft in. I will sit quietly while you. you do it and be like. Thank you. And or maybe or maybe it's not that we're going to bring Plato into his own cave, but everybody has to read Plato. Maybe that's the challenge. We need to come up with 13 different characters who have to read Plato. Well, we basically season. did 13 different characters that had to read Foucault <laughs> this season, so we know that we're capable of it. <laughs> Wonderful. I think that probably wraps us up for this season three in review. You know, not that our pods are particularly like well-oiled machines running tightly. This was a little bit looser than usual. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with it. It's also the shortest pod we've recorded this entire season (laughs) by a mile. (laughs) Literally, we're still less than half the length of the Keller pod, um, which is... God. That's actually the most unhinged thing we did was that podcast. Yeah, that was unhinged, but also what was the was it episode six or seven where it was like you and I recording at night after teaching was also pretty unhinged. Yep, it was. I think it was Walter Taffet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, episode like, seven. Well, dig on in. So this is going to be at least the last main pod with Danielle for a little while. Yeah. As well, by the time people are listening to this, you will have been in Greece for a while. Yes. Because this is not coming out till mid-June. Yeah, so I'll be about halfway through my Greece trip. Actually, I'll probably be in London at that point. Well, if only if only we all could. Um, although I did tell my student the other day, I'm like, oh, yeah, well, you know, my best friend's going to be in Greece all summer. And she's like, you have to go make it. I'm like, I can't afford to get out to Greece. but Listen, we're going to get you some university cash, even if it's not your university. <laughs> okay, there we go. That's the That's the catch. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is the last episode of me for a bit. I'll be back for season four. Yeah. And maybe some drop-ins for the still to be determined show that's going to be covered in Danielle's absence, which the only thing we know is that it has to be a show that Danielle has no time for and would never herself willingly watch or podcast about. Exactly. So expect, it's on my to-do list for this weekend, actually, to try to settle some of this information Settle some scores. (laughs) Settle some scores, as Daniel and I are doing intellectually this year, um, hypothetically. (laughs) When is our article coming out? Actually, that's a wonderful question. Honestly, like, so there's, what, a solid seven weeks, six weeks before this episode comes out. I'm sure somewhere in there we get the, you have to submit your proofs to us in 38 minutes or this message (laughs) self-destructs email (laughs) from the, uh, from the editors, not from the editors, from the publishing, from the evil, like rent-seeking publishing company, not from the wonderful No, the editors are amazing and they like, they really, really helped us make this, uh, like, great article yeah it was not a great article before (laughs) i would agree with that um i would definitely agree with that so i guess stay tuned i mean i've been threatening popecast i feel good about that for you great i think that that has brought us to the end of this episode so thank you so much for joining us on this season and this episode of not quite great books a tv podcast Thank you for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon. 
posted indirectly to producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. Like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time, go play some racquetball.